maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's program, we're joined by academic and writer Gonul Tol. She'll be discussing the reign of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the subject of her upcoming book, Erdogan's War, A Strongman's Struggle at Home and in Syria. Gonul Tol is founding director of the Middle East Institute's Turkey Programme and a senior fellow for the Frontier Europe Initiative. She's also an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Hosting today's discussion is Carl Miller, research director at the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos. Let's join Carl now. Gunnar, very warm welcome to you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Carl. All right. Well, let's begin actually before Erdogan, Gunnar, with, with Turkey itself. So for those of us that aren't kind of area specialists, Tell us about Turkey. Tell us about why it's important, why it's so central, and why, why we've kind of worried and cared about Turkey so much um, over, over its history and ours. Well, it's an interesting country. And I think the most interesting part is that we don't know what it is. It's, is it a Middle Eastern country? Is it a European country? Is it an Asian country? For some, it's, uh, maybe it's all of it, or maybe it's, it's, it's none of those things. So if uh, you talk to a European, Turkey is not European enough. You talk to a Middle Easterner, you will 
feel like Turkey is is way too Western because of of the secularization, the radical secularization reforms carried out by the founding fathers of of the the modern day Turkish Republic. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting country. It's cu- culturally, even Turkish people themselves struggle with that identity. They don't know how to define themselves. But I would say what makes it interesting in terms of international affairs, it's it's all of those things, even fr- from a geographical point of view, too. But culturally, it's it's part of Europe. It's uh, it's an Asian country. It's a Middle Eastern country. And the, the historic divisions in the country make its domestic politics even more interesting. And uh, those divisions inside the country have become the main driver of the country's foreign policy. So that's why if you're not a, an area specialist, you find Turkey an, an interesting country to watch, both in terms of domestic uh, politics and its foreign policies. Well, I know that interaction, Gunnar, between domestic and foreign, of course, is one of the absolutely kind of key themes of your book. So we'll, we'll be going back there. But, but before we do, take us into kind of Turkey's kind of pre-Erdogan days. Kind of what was it like? What was the kind of reigning ideology? What were those divisions perhaps already simmering there? How was it situated in terms of foreign policy as well? Well, before Erdogan came to power, I think the, 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 the most significant decade was the 1990s, which in many ways gave way to the rise of Erdogan. The 1990s were difficult years uh, for Turkey because uh, there were coalition governments uh, which made Turkish domestic politics and governance very unstable. Uh, Turkish economy was struggling. There were cultural divisions in the country. 1990s were the years that followed liberalization reforms of the 1980s, neoliberal reforms of 1980s. And that those reforms paved the way for the emergence of, not the emergence maybe, but paved the way for different cultural groups, for instance, conservative Turks uh, or uh, Kurdish nationalists to, to express themselves more. And that led to a clash and further divisions in, in Turkish politics. The 1990s were also notable because the Kurdish separatism became a more significant security threat in many ways. That, that's how it was conceived by the establishment, by the government and by a large majority of the country. Turkey has a sizable Kurdish minority. And in the 1980s, the PKK, which is the, the militant organization that's considered to be a terrorist organization by Turkey and, and others in, in the West. So they launched their first attack in, in Turkey in the 1980s and 1990s became the years when the PKK terrorism peaked. So it, it was, uh, 1990s were pretty chaotic years and that's, that gave rise to a, uh, a very strong demand from the people for a more uh, stable country, both in terms of economy, but also in terms of politics. So people in many ways strived for a one-party government that was stable, that could fix the country's pressing problems, and Erdogan came against that background. D- d- tell us briefly, uh, Kanul, about, about Kem- Kemalism, because I, I know that was both dominant, but also something that, that Erdogan kind of set himself up against, didn't he, during his rides? 
That's right. So Kemalism is the founding ideology of the Republic. And it was a, an ideology based on on Turkish nationalism and the radical understanding of secularism. It was modeled after the French laicite, where the, the founding elite sought to wanted to design a, a system which in which uh, religion and state was not separate, but state actually controlled the religious sphere. Religion was considered to be confined to the individual sphere and public expression of religion was not allowed. And that radical interpretation of secularism was a dividing issue for the conservative, the large conservative segments of the country, and particularly uh, people like Erdogan and the school of thought that he came from. And Kemalism was guarded by the institutions that were entrusted with protecting the Kemalist ideology, the Kemalist nature, the secular nature of the state. And chief among those institutions was the military. So the military in many ways was the guardian of the Kemalist ideology and the secular nature of the Republic. So that's why Erdogan, when he came to power, although uh, we'll talk about this later, he didn't come to power promising a good fight against the Kemalists because he was smart enough and not to go against the military directly. Instead, he used an agenda of reform, a pro-EU reform agenda, both at home and on the foreign policy front to sideline the military. But when he came to power, that was, I think, his number one goal because he understood that as someone who came from an Islamist background, uh, and remember, he captured a, a significant, he captured 34% of the vote, but he understood that even though he captured the vote, the real battle uh, the, the, was, was against the, the secularist establishment. So he understood that for him to be able to survive in, in Turkish politics, he had to sideline the Kemalist ideology and the chief guardian of that ideology, which is basically the military among, among others. And do, do, does this tension, this kind of balancing act kind of characterize perhaps the first phase of his, of his kind of um, rule? You know, this kind of, on the one hand, a kind of an, an anxiety about the military and what they might do, but on the other, a, a kind of appealing to constituencies that, that, that actually didn't have much, say, in common with the interests of the military or the Kamalist kind of elite in Istanbul. That's exactly right. And that really called for a very sophisticated strategy. And Erdogan designed that very sophisticated strategy, not only to be able to survive in Turkish politics, but to thrive, actually. So when he came to power, that was in 2002, he identified the military as his chief competitor. But, but again, uh, given the fact that these Kemalist institutions, including the military and the judiciary, which was never independent, even before Erdogan came to power, judiciary, the military, these were the institutions that were entrusted with uh, protecting uh, the Kemalist ideology. He understood that the, the secularist establishment used these institutions uh, and the regulations in place to shut down 
Islamist parties in the past. So he learned a lesson from that. Both himself and the people around him, the founding elite of, of the Justice and Development Party, the AKP, the hard lesson that they drew from the experience of the past Islamist parties was that if you want to survive in Turkish politics, it doesn't matter how many votes you secure. It doesn't matter whether you have a, you command a large majority in the parliament. You just cannot go against the military directly. You have to be, you have to be smarter than that. And the smart strategy that they came up with was promoting Turkey's EU membership. Now, Erdogan, when he came to power, he constantly identified his party not as an Islamist or an Islamist-rooted party. He defined his newly established party as a conservative democratic party. So that, that was his way of easing concerns on the secularist front, that I'm not a danger to you or the secularist foundations of the Republic. So even that mindset, this enlightened mindset was reflected on the party program which underlined the importance of, of secularism. So he came on, on a platform that promised to make Turkey a real democracy. So he did not come to power promising a, an Islamist government. He did not come to power claiming to be the continuation of former Islamist parties. He came to power promising Turkey has never been a real democracy there are large masses that have been stripped of power by the the, uh, the Republican elite. So we will give power to the to, to those marginalized masses. We are the people. We are the real people. For so long, a small elite captured the levers of power, held levers of power, and kept us out of uh, out of the system. So we are here to reverse that. And I'm gonna make sure. That, that, that Turkey becomes a consolidated democracy. So that was his promise. And he said the only way for Turkey to become a consolidated democracy is if, it, if Turkey becomes an EU member. And that was a great promise because I just told you about the, the, the 1990s where people were, were tired of, of instability, erosions in, 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 in democratic institutions. Uh, so this came, this became a music to ears to, to, to many who were striving for a, a more democratic and stable country. So many people who would traditionally not vote for an Islamist rooted leader voted for him, including liberals, because they thought that, so this is it for Turkey. We really need a leader who can normalize the presence of, of religion in public, who can deliver on the promise of a, a consolidated Turkish democracy. And his pro-EU and pro-reform agenda, really, it was welcomed by a, a large majority of, of the country. So that was his narrative. But now looking back in retrospect, what I think is, is, is that he used that pro-reform and pro-EU agenda to um, pave the way to, to realize his authoritarian um, goals. And that was sidelining the military, sidelining uh, the secularist establishment so he could be able to uh, centralize power. 
Th those uh, those listening um, that were at the event uh, with Gideon Rackerman will remember that um, he included uh, Erdogan within this kind of typeset of a leader, which he called strongman. And I guess I guess Gunnar, this this is a moment where perhaps we might draw the the first of perhaps a number of analogies between Erdogan and another member um, of that group, of course, Vladimir Putin. You know, so is is there a kind of? Is, it, it doesn't seem to me to be possibly an accident that you have the emergence of those two leaders at roughly the same time. You know, both kind of selling themselves as kind of pro-Western reformers in a sense, or certainly kind of turning to the West, looking for approval and 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 and, and kind of offering a kind of language of liberalisation and and institutionalisation of democratic reform, okay. and and but then also to their domestic populaces, selling themselves as as someone who can kind of um, bring order, stability, and a kind of decline in 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 kind of the perhaps the kind of flashes of violence and, mm -hmm. and, and danger that, that people were living through at that point. Is that, is that, is that a fair characterization or link? No, it is definitely. And uh, I really like the way you laid out the, the, the similarities, how they started as Putin when he came to power. He was not a, a leader that opposed uh, Russian integration with the rest of Europe. In fact, he defined Russia as part of Europe. And he wanted to be part of that European club, just like Erdogan when he first came to power. He desperately wanted to get Turkey into the EU. And, and he was, was that genuine, do you think? Did, did, did he genuinely uh, kind of really, really actually see Turkey as, 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 as moving into the EU? And, and was he genuine in, in, in the democratic reform that he wanted to bring about? See, that's a very difficult question to answer, Carl, because uh, one school of thought argues that, in fact, he was an authoritarian all along. He was always an Islamist. He always had this urge to centralize power. He was a power-hungry leader who would never, who would never allow uh, democratization to curb his own power. So that's, that's one school of thought things. And the other, so they argue that, well, he was never genuine about getting Turkey into, into the EU. It was just an instrument. But others argue that, well, in fact, th th that is possible. But on the other hand, maybe there was a road not taken. Maybe if the EU acted in a different way, could that change Erdogan's calculations? For instance, Erdogan was, again, as I said before, he ran on a pro-EU uh, agenda and he did everything in his power. And he took a considerable risk, especially on Cyprus. And Cyprus is, is a very important topic here, particularly for the secularist establishment. It's considered to be a, a taboo. Uh, the military and the secularist establishment are always opposed to international efforts to reunify the island. They considered Cyprus question as a national cause. They never wanted to give in to Western demands. Whereas Erdogan, even when he was vulnerable to the military's actions, uh, the, I'm talking about early 2000s, uh, Erdogan really pushed ahead. He, he really took a considerable political risk to give concessions on the Cyprus questions to the extent that he was once adored by Greek leaders. Some Greek leaders said, we've never seen a, a Turkish leader like this before. He comes up, up with questions. He helps the international community to reunify the island because for Erdogan, that was his ticket. Compromising on the Cyprus question was his ticket to, to the EU to get EU's approval or Turkey's uh, membership. And he was desperate 
for EU membership because he thought that that was the most effective way of sidelining Turkish military. So others are saying that if when Erdogan was so enthusiastic, we've heard countries like Germany or France talk about a privileged partnership, which was short of a full membership. And that was a turning point, another turning point in the way Erdogan saw uh, EU and the Western world was when the EU granted membership to Cyprus. So several, I think there were several incidents which really changed the way Erdogan saw Turkey's uh, EU membership. And of course, there were domestic dynamics involved too. When uh, Turkey did not get what it wanted from the EU, when Cyprus was granted membership, for instance, uh, the, the, there was a nationalist backlash at home, which really strengthened the opposition nationalist party. And Erdogan thought, okay, I mean, I gave so many concessions on, on, on the Cyprus question to, to Europeans and I, I didn't get anything. They're still talking about a privileged partnership. And I'm also bleeding at home. I'm losing votes to the nationalists. So that's when he changed his tune. Now, the question, going back to your question. So at that critical moment, if the Europeans, if the EU acted differently, would that change Erdogan's calculations? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, maybe for a few years. Or maybe he would ultimately go back to his original idea of establishing an autocracy. It's really not possible to answer that question, I think. All right, well, but bring us up to the next uh, turning point. So, so when does Erdogan decide not to be a conservative Democrat anymore? Why? And what, what does he turn into instead? Well, 2015, I would 2011, I'm sorry, 2011, I think was the turning point. So from 2002 to 2011, I think he was still quite vulnerable to uh, the secularist establishment's actions. Because until 2011, he kept winning elections after elections, and yet the secularist establishment and the military still uh, called the shots. They were still quite strong. So he, that's why Erdogan decided to tread, caref to, to tread carefully. He uh, pursued a very uh, sophisticated strategy. On the one hand, he was defensive vis-a-vis -vis the, the military in the sense that he didn't want to touch on contentious issues. For instance, when Turkey engaged with the Middle East before 2011, and Middle East is a region where uh, the, the Kemalist leaders, they wanted to stay away from the region. They did not want to, they wanted to be a status quo power. They didn't want to interfere in regional countries' affairs because the, the Kemalist thinking was that this is a troubled region and we should be, our prime focus should be the West. That was the thinking. So when Erdogan came to power, Kemalist thought that, well, will he change Turkey's foreign policy axis? Are we going to see a, Tur a, a Turkey that's more involved in Middle Eastern affairs? Because at the end of the day, the thinking went, he's an, he's a former, he's an Islamist. That didn't really happen before 2011. Erdogan pursued a very cautious policy and a very pragmatic policy. He did not cross the Kemalist red lines in the Middle East, which was Islamism and the Kurdish separatism. For instance, when he cultivated close ties with Iran or with countries like Syria, he made sure that the Kemalists were okay with it. He made sure that the, the cooperation, that he had secured the cooperation of these countries against the PKK. He made sure 
that the, the relations that he was cultivating had nothing to do with, with culture, with religion. It was pure business and investment. So that was his way of playing cautiously. And he did that because he knew that the military was still very strong. But then came 2011. And that was when, by the time Turkey held elections in 2011, he had consolidated, he had sidelined the military, he had sidelined the secularist establishment, and he had consolidated power. He had brought uh, Turkish media, judiciary, all major institutions under his control. So he was, in the true sense of the term, he was the leader, maybe for, for the first time. So 2011 in that regard is, is a turning point. So when he understood that he had sidelined his secularist opponents, that he had centralized power, he was much less vulnerable to the military's actions, he had to change his strategy. Because imagine, you control everything now. He needed, I think, a, a new ideology to legitimize his presence. When he came to power in 2002, for instance, he used this victimization rhetoric, which is something that Putin refers to all the time. So he, these are populist leaders. And one thing that populist leaders are good at is that they, uh, they create this uh, narrative of victimhood, that, that they are vi the victims of the elite, a corrupt elite. They are the victims of, of rich people. So there's always this uh, narrative of victimhood. And Erdogan did that. When he came to power in 2002, he framed the Kemalist elite as, as the corrupt elite and the large masses as, as the victims, the conservatives, the Kurds, uh, religious minorities, everyone else that, that the Kemalists had, had discriminated against. But by 2011, imagine you are a populist and you've been in power for what, like nine years. And by the time you have become the establishment yourself, right? But he still needed that victimhood narrative. And the way he created that victimhood narrative was by referring to Islam. So he framed himself, and you'll see that in his victory speech that he delivered after he won 2011 elections. He framed himself as the leader of the oppressed Muslim masses. So now he switched from a, a, a democratizing force representing uh, marginalized masses. Now he became the leader of the Ummah, the Muslim na nation that was not just in Turkey, but beyond Turkey. And the, 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 the corrupt elite was, was the Western world. So you can clearly see that change in strategy starting from 2011, where he embarked on a project of Islamization at home and Islamization on, on the foreign policy front. And when I say Islamization, I want to uh, I want to uh, underline something here. I'm not talking about Erdogan wanting to establish a, a Sharia and Iran-type state. He embarked on this Islamization project through a very symbolic 
means, I think. The, the secular nature of the state still, still remain intact, although the visible signs of secularism was not there anymore. But the relationship between state and secularism, religion, still was pretty much in, intact. But he injected Islam into public sphere. For instance, you could see Islam more visible in the public sphere. And he could he would use Islam as a reference more often when he was referring to policymaking, to governance, to foreign policy. So those symbolic gestures, they were part of his attempt to Islamize uh, society. And he needed that because he needed to legitimize his rule and he needed to create a new victim, a victimhood narrative. And that's what it did for him. So on the foreign policy front, that uh, narrative of uh, Islamization had had implications because by 2011, uh, it, it, another important turning point was taking place in the region, which was the Arab uprisings. So the Arab uprisings came at the, at the perfect time for Erdogan because he could use the uprisings to uh, pursue his domestic goals and to strengthen the, the, his efforts to Islamicize the society at home. Oh, thanks, Gunnar. So, so bringing us closer to the present now, we've we've seen Erdogan, the conservative Democrat, kind of morph into Erdogan, the Islamist populist. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that is is that what he remains today? Is is that the best way of understanding Erdogan of the present? No, because something else happened along the way. Into so from 2011 to 2015. Both uh, in domestic politics and foreign policy, Islamism became a very uh, important tool for him because he now set his eyes on a new uh, goal. Remember, in 2002, his goal was to sideline the secularists, and he had achieved that by 2011. And in 2011, he had a new goal, and that was to establish a presidential system, a Turkish-style presidential system that would grant him unprecedented powers. And he realized to be able to realized that goal, he needed to rely on the conservative segments of the country, including the Kurds. So at home, part of the reason why he embarked on that Islamization project was to appeal to those conservative segments of the country so he could uh, secure their buy-in for the presidentialism project. But by 2015, he realized that that was not going to work. In 2015, June of 2015, Turkey held uh, elections. And Erdogan's party, for the first time since 2002, lost its parliamentary majority. And that was a turning point because Erdogan understood that the, the using Islamism to, to establish a presidential system was not going to work. And part of that Islamization, part of that Islamism strategy was uh, reaching out to the Kurds. The way he defined the Kurds was different from the way Kemalists defined the Kurds. The way Erdogan defined the Kurds was, you are part of the Muslim nation. So he, in a way, used that uh, the joint Muslim identity that the Turks and Kurds share as a glue to appeal to the Kurds and say, I'm your leader too. We are in this together. Let's establish a presidential system that will make Turkey stronger. And there is something in it for every one of you. To the conservatives, you'll get a more religious society. You'll see Islam more visible 
in the country, to the Kurds, you are part of this Ummah, this Muslim nation, and I'll sit down with you and talk about granting more rights. And that was when Erdogan launched the Kurdish opening. So this happened before 2000, 2015. But by 2015 June elections, he realized that that strategy didn't work, that Islamism didn't do the trick because Kurds, his opening, Kurdish opening ended up costing him votes. It ended up strengthening the, the Turkish nationalists and the conservative the conservative coalition that he had set up with people, with organizations like Gülenis, for instance, that fell apart. So he realized there were cracks in his conservative coalition. The Kurdish opening didn't work in his favor. So he wanted to abandon that Islamist strategy in favor of a nationalist strategy, because he realized that for me to be able to win back elections, I need to ally with the Turkish nationalists. That was the decision he made after he lost the elections in 2015. And since then, there's been an alliance between Erdogan and the Turkish Turkish nationalists. And that's had a huge impact on Turkish domestic scene, as well as the steps that Erdogan has taken on the foreign policy front. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com Dot com. That's IQ, the numeral two, premium.supercast.com, or see the link in the description. Thank you for all your support. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we, we, we have Erdogan, the conservative Democrat, becoming Erdogan, the Islamist populist, mm-hmm. becoming Erdogan, the Turkish nationalist. Mm-hmm. Each time, each time he hops, as it were, good or, uh, as you tell it, from um, ideology to ideology, it seems like it causes a vast reorienteering of both Turkey's domestic and foreign policy affairs. It's all of that just driven by like political survival and the expediency of a single person. Does it really just come down to... Erdogan keeping himself in power in Turkey. That's what this all ultimately is for. That's that's right. That's right. Everything is about Erdogan wanting to stay in power. And that's why when I'm asked whether ideology has played a role in Erdogan's policies, my first question is which ideology? Yes, ideology has certainly played a role, but uh, but different ideologies play different roles in Erdogan's survival strategy. But what's what's important to underline here is is the fact that what allowed Erdogan to leap from one ideology to another is the historical grievances, uh, historical divisions in the country. There's always been a historical division between the conservatives and the secularists. And you have the Sunni Muslim majority on the one hand, and then you have 
ethnic Kurdish minority on the other hand, and you have religious minorities on the other hand. So this very uh, complicated structure of Turkish society and if I may say, the sins of 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 the the the, uh, the Republican elite, the way how they imagined Turkish society as a homogeneous society, and and all the complications that has created divisions that that has created in Turkish politics and society, those things allowed Erdogan to leap from one ideology to another. Because if it was in another context, sure, populists use ideology as an instrument. Right. That, that's 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 a known fact, because populism itself is, is not an ideology, is not it doesn't offer a solution to to major problems. So they usually pair populism with a with an ideology. That's what they do. But for Erdogan, he could easily become a conservative Democrat and an Islamist and later a nationalist, and a very few people would question whether that's genuine or not. And that is because these ideologies in the Turkish context can be very fluid. Turkish Islamists, for instance, they can be nationalists, strong nationalists. Turkish socialists can be strong nationalists. So that fluid atmosphere in the country, because of the historic background, I think that explains why Erdogan was able to utilize those different ideologies pretty effectively to stay in power. Tell us about um, Erdogan today. So if his political survival is really the, the main driver, both of uh, Turkish domestic and foreign policy, what are, are his kind of political antenna picking up as threats right now? And you know, it, 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 kind of extending his habits of of re-engineering himself forwards. Mm-hmm. You know, will he be turning to an, another great big pivot of foreign policy, for instance, in order to try and ensure his survival in the years ahead? Great question, Carl. So for many years, nationalism did wonders for Erdogan, starting from 2015. I think nationalism helped him consolidate his power. He could be able to win elections, he could be able to establish the presidential system that he had been dreaming about, thanks to nationalism. So Turkish nationalism did wonders for Erdogan. But we found out in 2019 that nationalism was not doing the trick anymore. And 2019 is is another turning point in the sense that Turkey held local elections that year and Erdogan's party lost almost all major cities. And that's a big deal. I can hear people asking, why do we care about local elections? Local, uh, holding municipalities was key to Erdogan's clientelistic network. So in 2019, we realized that despite his alliance with the nationalists, he lost elections. So I think the key, one of the key reasons for his election loss was Obviously, economy, number one reason, but the number two reason was the presence of millions of Syrian refugees living in Turkey. There are officially around four million. The unofficial count is, I think, is much bigger. So there is now a big nationalist backlash against Syrian refugees, which makes me to this point. Nationalism is not working for Erdogan anymore because now there is a growing nationalist opposition to Erdogan, and that's his own making. It's mainly because of, there are several reasons why 
Today, the nationalist field in Turkey is very fragmented. In 2015, the nationalist base was very uniform and they all uh, threw their support behind Erdogan. But today, um, a tiny fraction of nationalism, uh, the nationalists are backing Erdogan. Because of that alliance between Erdogan and the nationalist party, many nationalists left the nationalist camp, the alliance, uh, the Erdogan uh, nationalist camp, and they've joined the opposition's ranks. Again, there are different reasons. There's a younger generation there who are more worried about other things other than the Kurds. But in general, we, what we're seeing today is a more fragmented nationalist field, which leaves the question of, so what will Erdogan do? I mean, Turkey will hold elections in a few months in 2023. So far, he's, he's, he's worked on, he, he relied on nationalism. So what is his strategy? And, and foreign policy has worked in his favor. He used particularly the war in Syria to consolidate his power, to, to consolidate the nationalist base. Is he going to do that again? So my answer to that is, I think right now, the problems that he's facing, be it uh, from the economic problems to the refugee problem to a, a, a new generation of Turks who are quite unhappy with the, the state of affairs in the country. So he, he's facing many different challenges. Uh, so I think he cannot just, it's very difficult for him to, nash, to mobilize the national space the way he did in 2015, 2016, 2017. That's not really possible. And again, similarly, he used the war, particularly the war in Syria, to consolidate the nationalist base. He cannot do that anymore because, again, this new nationalist, emerging nationalist opposition has other things to worry about. Certainly, the Syrian refugee issue is, is, is one of them, but they have other problems, such as we are unemployed, we can't find jobs, we don't want to live in a country which is, uh, we can't even tweet. I mean, we, we, we land in jail, we can't express ourselves. So they have uh, a lot more, they have more sophisticated needs, uh, which they think Erdogan cannot meet. So that's why I think uh, right now Turkish politics is, uh, is, is more, uh, fragmented, and that is that that can undermine uh, Erdogan. So, what can Erdogan do in this context? I don't think a, a tension on the foreign policy front is is going to win him elections. I think there are three things that he can do to improve his chances. Another Kurdish opening, I think, would help because there are uh, millions of Kurds living in Turkey, and they could actually be kingmakers in the next elections. The pro-Kurdish party has around 6 million votes. So Turkey is a country of over 80 million people. So 6 million votes is, 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 is important. Uh, so he could, again, engage the Kurds and uh, launch another Kurdish opening. That's one possibility and something that he could do to improve his chances. And the second thing is economy. He has to do something to improve economy. Whether he can do it is it's a question mark, but he can try with cosmetic things right before elections, can take cosmetic steps to appeal to the voters. And the third thing that will really uh, impact his chances in the polls is which candidate the opposition parties field. If it's a weak candidate, despite all the problems he's facing, Erdogan still has a chance to, to win the elections. That's going to well. Let's. Uh, I see the questions pouring in from uh, from the audience. So let's so let's turn to some of those. 
The first one very rightly brings us onto a topic that I know will, will, will probably be the reason why many people are thinking about Turkey right now, but we haven't really discussed, which is, of course, Ukraine. So what does Erdogan, question asks, want out of acting as the peacemaker for Ukraine and Russia? Kind of how 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 is he slotting this into this narrative around around his own political survival? Is this is this kind of part of of, of how Erdogan sees himself persisting uh, in power going forwards? Well, several things. First, he doesn't have that many options. He cannot really take sides. He can't do anything but to mediate in the conflict. And the reason is, Turkey has cultivated strong ties, particularly strong defense ties with Ukraine. And a few things on... Bayraktar. Exactly. But not just that. That's good for Ukraine, good for Turkey too. But I think there's another important component that we don't talk about. And that is um, the Western sanctions on Turkey, on the defense sector particularly. It's really hurt Turkish defense sector. Turkey cannot produce engines, like jet engines, for instance, which is which is a huge problem for a country that is striving to be become a, a self uh, an independent country in, in the defense on the defense front. So uh, Turkey Erdogan uh, before the crisis in Ukraine started, Erdogan solved that problem somewhat uh, by signing an agreement with Ukraine. According to the agreement, Ukraine was going to help Turkey produce those engines. So uh, Ukraine and Turkey defense ties became very strong. On the other hand, Turkey has a very complicated partnership with Russia as well. And I'm not just talking about the defense partnership. Turkey recently purchased the Russian-made S-400s. And now considering purchasing uh, Russian jets if the U.S. fails to, to deliver F-16s. So there's a, uh, there's a strong defense partnership between Turkey and Russia, but that's not it. Uh, Putin and Erdogan are very close. Uh, for instance, Putin recently channeled billions of dollars into Turkish economy. Cash, which is uh, he, Erdogan desperately needs cash ahead of elections. Uh, Russia is building Turkey's first nuclear uh, reactor. But more importantly, in, in Syria, Russian cooperation is, is quite important to Erdogan uh, because Erdogan's nightmare is another refugee flow uh, emanating from, from Syria. And right now there is Idlib, which is the northern Syrian town. And if uh, the regime captures Idlib, for instance, there will be millions of people moving towards Turkish border. And that's a nightmare scenario for Erdogan, particularly right before the elections. So that means he really, Russia calls the shots in Syria. And that means Erdogan really needs to cooperate, work with Russia. So because of all these reasons, and there's also the trade partnership, energy partnership. So because of all those reasons, Erdogan can't really afford to lose Putin either. So mediating is, is the optimum, is his best shot. But there's also another reason for why Erdogan is mediating. And that is, um, especially after Turkey, Erdogan cultivated this partnership with the nationalists in 2015, he pursued a very anti-Western, anti-American, very militaristic, very aggressive foreign policy agenda. And I think at some point he realized that that's not working. He really needs to, I mean, EU is Turkey's biggest uh, trading partner. He really needs to work with the West and he really needs to mentize with regional countries. So recently he embarked on a, on a process of mending ties 
with um, Western countries, with Washington, with Europe, with regional countries. So he's the fact that he's mediating in a conflict where West desperately wants to resolve, it really kind of opens the door for Erdogan to Western capitals. So he can pitch himself as a very useful ally because starting from 2015 particularly, he was seen as the Trojan horse uh, in NATO. Uh, so he wanted to change, he wants to change that narrative and pitch himself and Turkey as a valuable NATO partner, a partner that the West has to work with. So I think that was partly why Erdogan was so keen on mediating uh, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. The next one is about Erdogan's relationship with Assad. What, what, what is it now and uh, where do you see uh, that it might go? Well, it, we already started hearing the word normalization with the Assad regime in Turkey, and that was unthinkable only a few years ago. But I think for a while, that's been on the horizon. And in fact, I would say since 2015, the official narrative has always been, I mean, Erdogan's official narrative, we want to topple this regime. We, we don't want to work with Assad. But unofficially, since 2015 and 2016, all the steps that Turkey was taking in Syria actually strengthened Erdogan's hand. Because after Erdogan changed his domestic strategy to stay in power after 2015, he changed his Syria strategy as well. So when the uprising in Syria started in 2011, Erdogan's number one goal was toppling the Assad regime. But in 2015, from 2015 onwards, uh, he shifted his priority to curbing the Kurdish gains in the region. So toppling the regime took a backseat to that goal. But the steps Erdogan took within, within the framework Astana, for instance, uh, Erdogan mm. worked very closely with Putin and the Assad regime to consolidate Assad's military gains on the ground so that the Assad regime would look the other way when Erdogan attacked the Kurds. So he's been doing that on the ground anyway, but only now we're hearing uh, Turkish officials talking about the need to start talking to Assad again. So I don't think it's a it's it's a distant uh, picture where we see Erdogan and Assad together. And and uh, one more thing, and I'll end there. There is the increasing pressure from Turkish opposition to mend ties with the Assad regime because the opposition makes the argument that the only way to be to to send the millions of Syrian refugees back to Syria is actually to work and ally with the Assad regime. And that uh, that uh, puts a lot of pressure on Erdogan. And that's why we're hearing these these uh, these things about norm normalizing ties with Assad. Well, the, the next question brings us back to Turkey to, to just dwell for a moment, Gunnar, on the on the kind of extent of domestic repression and I guess consolidation of power that Erdogan has actually managed to achieve. I can also tack shamelessly my own sub-question onto the end of this. So the, the, the question here says, exactly how much press freedom is there in Turkey right now? It does seem that dissent uh, and opposition voices can be heard, but it's got the worst record in terms of imprisoning journalists. Um, my sub-question is, are, are there actually free elections? I mean, the elections themselves, are they formally free? And, and, and were Erdogan to lose... Would he step down from power? Well, Carl, if you asked me that question before 2019, my answer would be no. We've passed that point. 
elections in Erdogan's new Turkey do not matter anymore because we had a terrible experience in 2018, a presidential elections where, and even before that in 2017, referendum to switch to the presidential system where there were a lot of irregularities. There was a really small, he, he won by a razor thin margin and uh, a lot of irregularities there. So many people thought this is it. Elections do not matter. He's never going to walk away. He's going to be around forever. But then we saw 2019 local elections where the, the, the opposition parties mobilized their base, mobilized civil society, protected the ballot box. So that gave me hope that Turkish democracy actually has a pulse. And Turkish civil society can still do wonders. But, but, but you're right, the institutions as we know them are not there anymore. It's, it's become a country where one man makes all the decisions from when a soccer club is, is going to play the game to the country's foreign policy. Every decision is made from, from the top. And that's one of the reasons why political scientists call Turkey not an illiberal democracy anymore, but a competitive authoritarian regime where it's competitive because there are still elections, but it's authoritarian because the playing field is skewed. It's really, it's not even. Which brings me to your question, Carl, is are the elections free and fair? No. But I still have hope. Again, because of, of what the opposition and Turkish civil society did in 2000, 2019. And I think it all comes down to that. The question of what's going to happen? Will Erdogan just accept defeat? I think if the opposition wins by a large margin, and I'm, I'm talking about maybe four or five points, less than that, it's, it gets tricky because he can always, Erdogan can always rig the elections if it's less than, than four, 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 four points. But a, a bigger margin, I think he'll have to accept, accept defeat. Now, does that mean it's going to be peaceful? No. I mean, so many people are talking about these, um, these groups, nationalistic groups, paramilitary groups around Erdogan, and some of them we've seen on the streets on, on the day of, on the night of the failed coup. Many people uh, actually fear that, that he will unleash them on the night of the elections if he, if he loses. Well, the next question uh, uh, perhaps is my favourite for its sheer optimism and, and, and follows on, I think, directly from this. So is the irregular of the strongman leader, Trump, Putin, Erdogan, on its way out? I mean, we've seen one lose an election, another suffer a series of very deep reverses on, on the battlefield very recently. And Erdogan, you know, uh, as, as you say, is kind of looking shakier than he has been. Is it it's not true to say that these kind of personalists kind of uh, kind of charismatic autocracies in a way are just are just exceptionally poor forms of government that just don't ultimately deliver the things that the people want from them. Exactly, Carl. And I refer to a recent public opinion survey conducted in Turkey among the country's youth. So according to the survey results, uh, an increasing number of, of young people in Turkey, they are against uh, this personality cult. They know nothing other than Erdogan. They were born, I'm talking about uh, people who are born in the late 1990s, early 2000s, but they want the freedoms that their peers in, in, in the West are having. They, they want that. And in a country like Turkey, where there's a large, there will be 7 million people, new voters, like young people who will be voting in the next elections. So that's why what young people uh, think and feel really matters to politicians. So in the Turkish context, what gives me hope 
is that if you talk to this young generation, they are much more sophisticated, educated, and, and the way they see politics is different. They don't see it as a war between, uh, between a pure uh, group of people and a corrupt elite. They see it differently. They see it in a more nuanced way. And especially in, in the Turkish context, I think one problem that Turkish democracy has suffered from was this strong identification with the state, this, this understanding that state is sacred, that really left no room for individualism, left no room for expression of rights. It left no room for, for, for civil society organizations. So it really curtailed, it really uh, dealt a blow to, to, to uh, a, a Turkish democratic culture. But with the young generation, they do not feel that way towards the state anymore. They think that state is there to, to serve the people, not the other way around. And I think that's, that's really key to a flourishing democratic culture. And I feel like uh, the young generation in Turkey is not there yet, but is, is certainly getting there, which gives me hope. All right. Well, we, we're just a few minutes left, Gunnar. We might, this might have to be our last question. Um, uh, thank you for such a clear and interesting talk it begins. That's a nice piece of feedback live. Uh, please say something about Erdogan's current unorthodox economic policies, why he is applying them and whether they're helping Turkey or not. Well, it's certainly not helping Turkey, but it's helping his cronies ar around him. And I think that's the, the reason why he insists on those very unorthodox policies. And, and uh, another problem is that he really doesn't have people who technocrats or, or real experts around him. He's surrounded by Yes Man and his economic team. Similarly, they, uh, they cannot talk truth to power. And I think that's the real problem here. And, and I'll end with this. I think uh, right now, I've, I've just this morning, I've heard people talk about, oh, well, maybe Erdogan before the elections, he's so desperate that, that he'll actually uh, come to his senses and he'll implement real uh, economic, meaningful economic policies. I really do not see that happening anytime soon. And that's why I think his way out is basically implementing uh, cosmetic things before the elections, but not any meaningful economic uh, reforms or, or policies. So you don't think he's, there isn't time enough, is there, Gunnar, for him to actually do anything other than cosmetic surface, you know, maybe a handout or some kind of stimulus package or something like that? I, I, it's not just about a matter of lack of time. I think he genuinely believes that first he's really helping the, the, the people around him, his, 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 the people in his clientelistic network. And I don't think he's willing to, to carry out any, any reform. So there's a lack of, of willingness there. All right. Well, sadly, the time has come. So I, I'm really sorry, everyone, that, that so many questions today. I'm sorry to those of you whose questions I couldn't, I couldn't reach. I tried to pick the main themes that seem to be coming up. But thank you so much for, for sending them all in, of course. It's, it's so nice to see so many and, and for them to be so great. Gunnar, of course, primarily thank you to you. Um, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. The book is Erdogan's War. Thank you so much for joining us. Gunnar, thank you so much for joining us, wonderful audience. Thanks for coming to Intelligence Squared Plus event. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. For more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support.